Hello and welcome to another episode of Post-Exertional Mayonnaise. If you're new here, um, just to give you a bit of a background, the podcast is about living with ME and chronic illness, um, creativity and making meaning. Um, This week we've got a guest episode and it's Vlad Flexler. Um, Vlad is a a, a commentator, um, philosopher um thinks about music and politics um and it's uh we had a brilliant discussion and i hope you really enjoy it um we'll be back soon with all the usual segments and things like that um in the future we've got some brilliant poems and some music lined up um for a future episode um but for now um i hope you enjoy this episode um go and look for our website if you haven't already done so it's www pempod.com pempod.com and um yeah enjoy this discussion with Vlad if you feel um you need to take breaks uh or listening chunks do that because we had quite a a long conversation um and but i think it's uh i think it's probably worth sticking in there and um and, and listening because Vlad's got some really important things to say around um uh his his ME, but also about uh, living with uh, the the sort of psychologization of ME and how we tackle that, um, and I think that's some really important uh, stuff to to kind of uh, chew chew the chew the meat and and think about um, how how possibly things could change going forwards. Um, so yeah, enjoy the episode and uh, just take your time with it. Welcome to post-exertional mayonnaise um today we're joined by vlad vlexler <laughs> it's, it's, it's the name isn't it um we're joined by vlad vlexler um philosopher he focuses on politics and musical aesthetics uh he's a youtuber with over 10 million views and he lives with me is there anything else that you would say to describe yourself vlad no over 20 million views 20 million yes it's 10 on each each channel isn't it? i was watching the other day so yeah <laughs> just gonna get that in <laughs> so uh no that's good um and yeah i want to get into sort of finding out a little bit more about your, your youtubing journey as well but um to, to start off with do you want to tell us a little bit about your kind of early life and upbringing and then kind of your sort of leading into kind of how you became ill with me and your sort of chronic illness journey is that a lot to start off with not at all. Um, so I was born in the Soviet Union in 1981. And before the Soviet Union fell apart, my family moved for a few years to Israel. And then around 1994, about after about four years in Israel, they moved to the UK. So that's quite a typical journey. A lot of people from the Soviet Union participated in this extraordinary experiment in blood and belonging, Mm -hmm. which probably didn't work out brilliantly. And of course, a lot of the people who moved weren't particularly Jewish or weren't even particularly keen on their Jewishness. It was an opportunity to escape the Soviet Union. Mm -hmm. My life in England ended up with me going to university to study politics and philosophy as an undergraduate. And I went to Norwich 
UEA for my undergraduate degree for the strange reason that I was a terrible student at school. Mm-hmm. I actually did not turn up to my A-level exams. I simply no. stayed at home um, and had to repeat a year in school. Wow. I was living a very fulfilled um, intellectual life in my head, but um, I wasn't interested in school and I didn't think that I would be punished by life in the end for not being interested in school. I thought I would get through, but what that meant was that I didn't have a choice of universities to go to go to, Mm. but my time at UEA Norwich turned out to be utterly magical and probably better than what I would have experienced had I gone to Oxford or Cambridge, where I would have gone, had I done some work at school, then. I do move on to Oxford as a postgraduate student, um, and I begin to feel unwell, having had no major health issues all my life. The onset of ME, myalgic encephalomyelitis, for me was um, sort of gradual. It took a few weeks, and the first symptoms that kicked in were neurological. So I was, for a matter of a few weeks, feeling physically normal, but noticing Mm. stranger things going on with my brain. And it culminated in this experience that I've already shared a few times on the internet of me sitting in a research seminar room in one of the Oxford colleges in Nuffield College and wanting to make a very basic point that I'd been making like a broken record for several years. It wasn't a complex point. But as I tried to make it, I realized that no words were coming out and no thoughts were available to me that made sense. And that felt immediately to me like an apprehension of something serious going on. That felt worse than just being fluey or fatigued. Mm. And at that point, I I looked at all the other lovely young people in the room, so master students, PhD field students, and uh, one of them met eyes with me, um, a young woman called Miriam. She's a professional political philosopher now, and she made my point for me. Hmm. Um, I was criticizing a wonderful political philosopher um, called John Rawls in the remark I wanted to make. And I was saying something very simple about how, in my opinion, he had underestimated the importance of our conceptions of what it means to lead a good life to how we come to um, understand the political values in our society. So it wasn't a complex point. And uh, Miriam made it for me. And I looked at her as she did, couldn't understand the word she said. It made no sense to me at all. And that is a very typical, as you will know so well, that is mm-hmm. a very typical Amy experience. We have these stories of people being in the restaurant and not being able to sign their name mm-hmm. or people ceasing to understand something very simple that they've known all their lives. And that's not a forgetfulness. It's an incapacity for a certain kind of conceptual processing. And then on top of that, um, 
over the next few weeks, I developed the 15, 20 various uh, physical and neurological and cognitive ME symptoms. And that led to a period of two or three years during which I was probably in the severe end of ME, which really meant the majority of the time not, not talking, not walking, not being able wow. to read, not just philosophy, but the, you know, a, a, a paragraph in a tabloid newspaper. And eventually I started getting better and I moved from being severe to being moderate, which meant that I had the capacity to work or study maybe a quarter or an eighth of the time. And um, it's in that context that a few years later, um, I began uh, some PhD work in um, philosophy. So that's the early illness um, mm. journey. Yeah, it, it sounds like you say so similar to those initial kind of um, realizations that something's wrong. I think it was like with, with me, I was just like missing boxes in forms at work and stuff like that. And you just... Um, like today I was trying to remember cricketer's name and it just like went straight out. It was just gone from my head. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, it's hard. And then, and then everything else sort of tumbles on after that, doesn't it? All the other symptoms that kind of come. Um, so, so how did you, how did you get into becoming a YouTuber? Was that just something that you kind of started kind of alongside work or was it something that took over work or was it kind of something? That... So I, had the idea when I was still well that I would stay in academia for at least a decade or so, write mm. my first book, probably about Isaiah Berlin, and follow that up with a second book about political or moral philosophy. And after that, expand to being um, a communicator who wants to reach the general public and put on a kind of public intellectual hat. But I'm 42 now, and that book about Isaiah Berlin is still not mm -hmm. written. And I decided to reverse the order. Well, you know, um, why wait if my health is making one of the two things I want to do hard? Um, it doesn't mean that the other thing I want to do is, 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 is just as hard, actually. So why don't I start with it? Start by putting it first. And that's how I sort of jumped into this business of um, becoming a public intellectual before I had consolidated my own projects as a non-public intellectual, mm -hmm. if you like. So it was a kind of a um, illness-induced reversal of order. And now I'm sitting here hoping that, of course, if I'm lucky, that there'll be the possibility to still do both, um, but as passionately as, as I am committed to my intellectual work, I know that there could be a somewhat tragic outcome and I might not be able to do anywhere near as much of it as, um, as I hope. And that's um, life. Mm. Are you still working on the book then or is it kind of on the shelf as, as, as such? Kind of like this. Um, and basically uh, that will be so until i 
get a little bit more support with all the projects I'm doing. I'm still doing everything alone. But if mm -hmm. I got a little bit more help with some of my public communication work, that may create more space to again, start restart these um, projects that um, are all about love for me and that go right to the heart of what I find meaningful about my own life. So it's terribly important to me and I would be utterly thrilled if I could do some of it. Who, who, um, um, sort of forgive my ignorance, but who is Isaiah Berlin and, and, and how, why are you so passionate about him? I'm in part passionate about contemporary conversations about political concepts concepts that we all use in our everyday life, um, like liberty, equality, social justice, solidarity, a concept and political concept I'm very big on that we often struggle with in our societies today. Mm. And I only wanted to do this book on Berlin and then move on, simply because I felt some of the secondary literature on him, in particular on his writing about freedom needed a few correctives and i felt that i was well placed to do that and moreover i felt like i owed berlin something because i actually learned english by reading him when i came oh, to wow. the uk i first went to a very dodgy school um, hmm. that specialized in kids who got expelled from other schools for violent conduct um, wow. It was, it was uh, an environment where I just remember fighting and nothing else. And so I was actually quite <laughs> slow to acquire the language. Um, it was only after about a year and a half or two years in the UK that I seriously began to make progress with my English. And th uh, that little moment that started that was walking into a bookshop in London and picking up Isaiah Berlin's book of essays about 19th century Russian thinkers. Wow. I read it and started using words from it before I even understood what they meant. And all sort of on I wow. went from there. Wow. Yeah. And that that's kind of, you've sort of kept that passion for his work and that's, that's impressive. Yeah. Um, so, um, how do you kind of manage your YouTube channels in terms of your ME symptoms and how that affects you on a day-to-day -day basis in terms of you think deeply about how you want to communicate through YouTube, but, um, like you were saying about your mind going blank during the, um, you know, being in a, a university situation, does that still happen now? Or do you kind of manage your time so that you kind of conserve all that brain energy for, for, for those recordings? It happens all the time, but it's never painful for me. It, never, it doesn't come uh, across watching your videos, I must say. So. It's never painful because I think as soon as I sufficiently came back to a level of functionality with me, I let that sort of element of finding myself not being able to communicate properly in a public forum. I, I found it painful for a while and I just let that go. I remember um, an experience that seems almost unreachable for me now because I just don't relate to it the same way. But um, I think I was defending a chapter of my the PhD that I was writing. And when philosophers engage in that kind of ritual, they sort of jump on each other like a pack of dogs. And that's a wonderful ritual. We're trying to dis 
destroy, deconstruct um, the presenter's work in a way that's going to help them, obviously. And I got asked a bunch of questions, which I couldn't answer on the spot, even though I knew they were eminently answerable. Um, and I found that, and we're talking kind of over 15 years ago now, I think, incredibly painful at the time, particularly as before being sick, um, I was sufficiently quick on the spot that it just felt to me that it'd be impossible for me to lose an argument. I mean, I could be wrong, <laughs> but I would always be quick enough to say something compelling um, in response, and that changed. Um, and yeah, I found that incapacity a bit painful for a while, but for over a decade now, I've completely let that pain go. And so when it happens, and it happens all the time, particularly on my second channel, Vlad Vexler mm. Chat, where I just turn on the camera and speak, I'm calm about it. And I wait until I uh, regain my trail of thought. It looks much more like I'm thinking yeah, yeah, on yeah. camera. I'm not. I'm going blank most of the time. Um, I did a video wow. yesterday, which should have taken me 20 minutes, but it was about 50. And much of the video, I'm just going blank and I'm struggling with words and I'm focusing on, especially when I'm on days that are less good, I'm focusing on sitting upright and continuing to speak. And so that's already mm. an achievement if I'm vertical and I'm saying words. Okay, good. <laughs> let's, let's, you know, uh, and then. Um, I also make a very big emphasis on intent. Um, and I discuss that even with my audience, um, ongoingly. So to a certain extent, even just me sitting there, um, however good or bad my level of performance is, can be constructive as we engage with certain issues because in the end i'm not there to make arguments and i'm not there to persuade people i'm there to engage in a very weird kind of ritual that mm. if i'm lucky may help some people free themselves up a bit um enrich themselves a bit in the way they engage with the political world around them and so I don't put the pressure on myself to you know, make the perfect argument or to finish off every thought that I begin. Um, and I also use some tricks. So uh, before I got sick in public, I would often say, well, there are seven points here. And I would arrive at points seven, 12 minutes later. But of course, um, now that would be impossible. Um, so I restrict myself to two points at a time, normally, mm. maximum. And I just try to wait to make one point at a time. Um, but overall, I think that my own audience, those of them, which is thankfully the majority who have never encountered serious chronic illness, would be shocked by how sick I am while I'm doing this. Mm. They would be shocked by the mm. violence and the um, enormity of the physical challenges um, that I face. And that is true of all ME patients, right? Particularly mm. because of the liability of the condition. The world mostly sees this community of patients in their better moments. And it's no matter how well-intentioned you are, it's almost impossible to visualize the full picture um, unless you're literally there to see it. 
Um, if you're just looking at that top 10, 15% of somebody's functioning, it's really difficult to appreciate mm -hmm. what a strange illness this is. And as bad as it is for me, I must say that, you know, uh, so many patients with ME have it worse. And then mm. so many patients with ME have it worse than that. And that's mm. why, you know, as you know so well, we've got medical studies that are coming out with um, evidence that at the level of uh, disability, ME may be as bad a condition as anything in the world, short of fatal illnesses a few weeks out mm. from death. And that point becomes more palpable when we look at the most severe patients, right? And these are people who, as you know so well, often can't tolerate touch or sound, often mm -hmm. they can't um, eat, and they're living in a kind of um, extraordinary hell because it's not just a hell of cessation where they just can't do anything and they're there in the darkness and then they're with their headphones, with their eye mask. But it's also, of course, a world of suffering. You know, sometimes mm. from the outside, when we look at people chronic, chronically ill, we think that they're just not able to do what they love. And that's true too. But oh my, it's also that they are suffering a lot and mm. suffering so much that so many of them would just be delighted to press a button um, if that button offered them a 15 minute break from their symptoms, that would be like a, an amazing mm. sort of day out. Um, so, you know, the, 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 there are gradations um, to this. And of course, I'm not, you know, I'm not as disabled and I'm not suffering as much as so many, um, so many other people, because this illness really does get very severe indeed. And, you know, every time that I can do things, um, while being frustrated that that's only a fraction of what I would be able to do if I'm well, I feel um, not just enormous gratitude that I can do all of that, but a kind of consciousness of how many people are completely excluded from the possibility of even living to that extent, realizing their, their lives to that extent. So, you know, um, every time I'm active, I, I feel that the, the ME community is um, you know, deeply in my thoughts, but it, because I'm conscious of just how extraordinarily violently this condition stops people's lives and affects, of mm. course, all the carers too, right? Um, who are there um, living it as well. Mm. Mm. Yeah, there's there's an awful lot to digest from from what you said, but it is, it's it's it's. I think it, one of the things I think you said well, um, in one of your videos was dancing with the illness. And I, I really appreciated that kind of like um, that metaphor, I suppose, because it's it, we sort of live in this kind of I, I wrote a kind of um, a, a blog a, a few months ago, maybe it was last year, about um, kind of living in this sort of in-between state because we there is that kind of gratitude that on the better days that things could be worse but there's also that kind of frustration constantly that we're not living the life we'd want to so like how do you sort of psychologically kind of manage that in terms of the frustrations or are you are you somebody that can kind of can can live within the 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 bubble of of your your energy envelope and and kind of feel content within that or do you feel a lot of frustration 
I would say I feel more than frustration. I think on a typical mm. day, I don't see how it's obvious that I'm going to be able to do what I minimally want to do. Even that range of activity I do have, very often it's not clear how I'm going to get through it. And it's only by sort of beginning it and sort of bobbing and weaving that I mm. get there. And I have that faith that I don't need to have the blueprint for how I'm going to do it in order to say I'm beginning to move forward. I think it's it's a really deep question that <laughs> you're asking. Um, I was awful at it early on. Mm. Early on, I fought the illness. I kind of wanted to wake up the next day and be well. Mm. And I thought that that was good. I thought that um, as I wasn't depressed and as I wasn't anxious, my mental health seemed to me to be good, which isn't true. I wasn't yeah. in <laughs> a healthy relationship with the challenge I was facing. Yeah. Um, but I wanted to sort of beat it. And what was wrong with that wasn't just the, the sort of absurdity of that enterprise. Um, and the fact that you would therefore be failing every single day of the year, if that's how you, you approached it. But what was absurd about it is something that took me, I would say, over 10 years of illness to properly feel beyond, not just grasp intellectually, but to feel. And that is that um, when you become chronically ill, of course, that overturns your life and changes your life alters it dramatically. But that kind of tragic event is also a part of life too. Hmm. And so what it took me about 10 years to get to is the sense that this wasn't just some kind of external assault on my life, which was here. And then the assault came from over there. But that, you know, this was a case of life giving me something I didn't ask for something I really didn't ask for. And then I had to begin dealing with it and dealing with it had to be a kind of dance and not a rigid mm -hmm. response that wanted to expel this assault on your life as though it was a completely external intervention. Now, of course, it's external in the sense that um, I didn't do anything to bring it about, but it's not external in the sense that um, humans get sick mm. um, a lot. Even in the most privileged societies, humans get sick a lot and they get mm. chronically sick a lot. And so that vulnerability is there with all of us. And it's actually just a kind of evasion and obliviousness that um, allows most people to not explore that, to not grasp it. Mm. So I became more flexible about the fact that what had happened to me was part of my life and not just an attack on my life. And one thing that's always kept me um, going and kept me um, capable of uh, feeling enormous fulfillment was I think my relationship with things I really loved. Of course, that's people, but also on top of people, it's certain bits of music or certain bits of philosophy with which I have 
a, a kind of an ongoing conversation that is really full of love and joy. Now, when I was really, really sick, it was hard because I couldn't listen to music. Mm. Um, I couldn't listen to classical music. The music I loved the most, I, I could listen to the least. Mm. And I could certainly not read it um, or think about it deeply. And I had some sort of practices that sound silly, but um, I, I had some scores of music I loved and I would often keep them open around my bed. Mm -hmm. um, even though I knew I would not go up and try to play the music or even listen to it. So I felt that there was this sort of, it was like a sort of attempt to reach heaven from hell um, mm. and a sort of an exploration of how one might do that. Um, now, of course, I have access to all of that just in a restricted time window. And that is an enormously sort of privileged part of my life. Um, and I genuinely believe that while the majority of my experience most of the hours in the day are not good but the best hours are enormously fulfilling for me if you take the top 10 percent or five percent of my experience um i can't imagine i can't think of a happier human being who is in my phone book or who i could even email um, so I have this bizarre sort of 90, 10 split that the best mm -hmm. of my experiences feels utterly extraordinary and utterly magical. Um, you know, and I suppose this takes us into many directions as one of them is just that I've, I've, I've been lucky. I've got lucky. I don't know with mental health, um, because this mm -hmm. kind of illness puts enormous pressure on your mental health. And, um, I think mental health goes, you know, in a couple of different directions um there's mental health issues that are about stuff we can control psychologically but there's also mental health issues that quite frankly have nothing to do with psychology you know if mm -hmm. you have mental health challenges it's just a product of neuroinflammation and nothing else that's also mm -hmm. extraordinarily difficult unimaginably mm -hmm. difficult and you know obviously i have just had enormous luck of um you know um being relatively blessed from that point of view and that has allowed me you know to cope obviously much better with the physical challenges than i would have done otherwise mm. i think i think yeah it's um i think like you i'm somebody that i i, I don't i don't really get depressed and i don't really get kind of too down about my illness until I go into one of them like deep crashes and that's when I sort of that that's when it kind of hits me and, and I realize oh hang on a minute I'm, I'm just feeling grumpy here and it's it's it, it, it's it's hard when your illness is kind of like impacts upon your mental health when actually generally I'm quite a sort of stable settled person in my, in my, my sort of mindset and it's 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 that um dealing with it and just trying to sort of know that it'll pass and that kind of waiting until you kind of get back to a better sort of um sort of baseline i suppose but yeah it's not not easy is it um how do you how do you sort of manage your time demands in terms of because obviously one of your the big things that you talk about is this sort of russia issue and ukraine and um and and the political kind of wranglings and how how do you sort of manage keeping on top of that in terms of um because does that take a lot of research and a lot of kind of 
trawling through making sure you're up to date with the news and things are you on the ball with the news quite a lot or does that is that something that you you struggle with managing to keep on top of all that because it, it must be quite demanding so first of all it's shocking how much you can do in three hours a day mm. um but also um often on top of these three hours i, I may have some additional time where i can do some things too within limitations i might be able to do them sort of from bed that might be listening to a podcast and so on um i am lucky in that i am not in the end a kind of a conventional country expert i'm mm. commenting on a, a very important politically bit of the world but i'm commenting on it through the lens of um a, a person generally concerned with whatever our biggest worries about our political environment should be so that's different i think to being somebody who is just telling people about russia and it creates a different ethic and so i don't actually do any research for my youtube um content okay and I have an ethical principle actually that I shouldn't because I feel that if I need to research something, I don't know enough about it to talk about it. Mm -hmm. um, it's always a delicate balance because inevitably if you're engaging in this kind of public intellectual conversation with a focus on a particular political story, um, you're always gonna be at risk on trampling on people's area of expertise and it's it's not ever possible to draw a clear line there of what you should and what you shouldn't talk about but you've got to have a clear sense of um where your expertise fundamentally lies and you always have to keep coming back to that so just to give you a tiny example um in a recent interview i was um uh invited to talk about questions which seem to have factual answers and i was conservative about going there um, unless they could immediately be tied to wider conversations about whether authoritarian regimes um collapse or survive under various conditions and so so on so bigger bigger topics like that so miami funnily enough it is um more compatible with that kind of mm. ethic moreover i am talking about a context which i've been following for you know two and a half decades if not more so i have an inherent advantage in mm. this it's like com built in. <laughs> comparatively to other other some other people who frankly started talking about this a year and a half ago um, mm. and started learning about it a year and a half ago so that's I think um, a, a part of the answer that I am I'm um, always aiming toward um, wider concerns that means that I do not need to have expert knowledge about the nature of political institutions and you know every um, country I'm commenting on or about the you know 
bureaucratic structure of the militaries. So that's not me. And I think that the fact that I'm engaging in a public intellectual activity rather than informing people about a, a country or two countries, um, that helps. Um, mm -hmm. But it's always a delicate balance and it always requires um, massive prioritization. And it always feels like I'm behind and I know that there is no solution except to, over some years, build in a bit of infrastructure whereby you can outsource more. Because at the moment, I'm still doing everything uh, myself. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. No, and I, I really appreciate it, kind of learning from you through your channel and, and learning. I, I think one of my difficulties with Miami, and I think I've mentioned it before, is like sometimes what's going on in the outside world feels a little bit overwhelming when I'm just trying to survive every day with me. So it's, it, it's, it's sort of like I, I read the news, but I, I try not to kind of like um, invest too much in it. Like I used to get really angry back in the day, probably before I got ill about, you know, Brexit and I'd get frustrated with this, that and the other, and you know, sort of the elections and I'd be like posting on Facebook and, um, and and now I feel like I sort of I sort of have to step back from it all so that I'm not overwhelmed by it and so that I, I kind of um, but I do enjoy watching your channels because I I feel it kind of gives me some insight without having to kind of like be too too invested in it in a sense so I, I thank you for yeah for 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 your work in that area and um, um I wanted to sort of get your views a little bit about um, the ME community and how how we sort of manage i know you you sort of mentioned earlier about people's other people's perceptions of our illness and how it's portrayed generally within like the media social media just in in the general public how people perceive me and and often that perception is wrong um and and how how do you feel that we can shift that and because there's so little political investment in into the wanting to sort of correct the ME narrative um, because of the sort of the last decades, two decades of um, misinterpretation and misrepresentation of the illness. How it, it, do you feel there's any way that we can shift that, or is that something that's just we're just stuck in the mud in terms of the psychologization of ME? Sorry, it's a big question. <laughs> So I am not a professional advocate, but I think that one thing that's necessary is several hard-hitting mainstream investigative documentaries into this hijack story with myalgic encephalomyelitis. Mm. It's a sort of, um, well, I'll give you an example. I was, in a, is a, I was in a documentary about Russian disinformation the other day, and that it's a project that took a year and a half and involved the public broadcasters of several Nordic countries. So given the number of people who are affected by ME um, pre pandemic, a quarter of a million in the UK, now more. Just consider that the UK has a population of sort of over 60, under 70 million. Um, mm. So that's a 
quite a big percentage. We're talking about um, you know, one in 250 people and probably now quite a bit more. So it needs two or three major hard-hitting documentaries in Europe and the United States, in my opinion, which look at this strange hijack of ME that occurred in a way that people have looked at the hijack um, um, in the area of the climate crisis, right? Mm. So w w there were investigations into what fossil fuel companies did mm. when they knew, but they did, but they knew. Um, similar with the tobacco story, right? Um, and we want to sort of um, break out of a dynamic where um, all of this is up for debate, right? And we want to get clear about the facts. Mm. So this uh, very strange hijack of ME that took place, it's even very difficult to describe it to somebody who is outside of the area very briefly. Um, let me just say, let me just say this. Um, imagine that you have got a very serious condition that affects your heart. And one of the symptoms of your condition is breathlessness. And then a bunch of people from um, psychiatry come along and they gather up lots of uh, patients with breathlessness without distinguishing between them, offer them some therapies, notice that um, it's possible that some of these therapies work, although even in the process of doing that, they still produce studies that don't make sense and that have become mm. comprehensively refuted. Um, now, that is so bizarre, what I've just described, that the, the very idea that that could happen, it sort of challenges people's idea of um, medical institutions. It challenges people's idea of the fact that surely in the modern world, knowledge percolates enough for that sort of disaster not to happen. Um, so that ne that needs to be told with all the you know the T's crossed in 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 these investigations. Um, I would say that the telling of these stories is like very likely to inevitable. The problem is we're going to still have to wait a bit. That's mm -hmm. one thing that I think is necessary. Um, the second thing that I think increasingly is being done well is just communication with public officials about this and getting um, people uh, who are in positions of political power um, across the science, right? Um, and when you are across the science, when you look at the fact that there's 30 years of peer-reviewed literature on this stuff, um, you're not going to be easily persuaded that a couple of uh, things that psychiatrists did uh, that are very uh, procedurally questionable uh, amount to any kind of serious challenge to this um, sustained literature. And that what you're in fact seeing is, if we're to put it benignly, and we shouldn't just put it benignly, but you're basically seeing an extraordinary kind of compartmentalization of knowledge, whereby knowledge is building in immunology and virology, not enough, just a small fraction of what we need, but it's building. But there's a couple of pockets, um, and psychiatry being one, where this knowledge hasn't properly percolated. 
um, for reasons that are uh, more unlovely than just a lack of a lack of comprehension. So, um, engaging with this with political representatives is very important. Another thing that's very important is that we keep this illness out of the culture wars. And this is one of the things that I'm particularly worried about, because quite frankly, mm -hmm. um, what's happened with long COVID mm. is very, very worrying because we've mm -hmm. now got populations who are split uh, along lines of political differences in what they think of long COVID, which is quite frankly, um, both absurd and disastrous because it uh, doesn't matter whether you're left wing or right wing or what kind of government you want. If people are sick, they're sick. <laughs> um, mm. So keeping um, this condition out of the culture wars is going to be very important because what we don't want to see um, is public institutions increasingly acknowledging this condition, but themselves increasingly losing the authority to mm. um, um, for that acknowledgement to be widely enough received. Um, and unless it's widely enough received, you don't get the, the relevant political momentum. And I also, you know, from a more personal point of view, um, believe in the importance of um, people who are able to uh, do so to communicate about this. But it's obviously very hard for ME patients to get out there. And I think those patients who do get out there have a long-term responsibility to... Um, deal with this and mm. and and talk about it and i see myself as having that responsibility but what i would say is that um it takes time to um evolve all of the important roles that you feel you're responsible to um to do so just to give a tiny example if i just kept on doing my me diaries on twitter i would have carried on talking to the ME community. Um, but now that I was talking about my professional concern, it's that that's created an audience for me. And in time will give me more possibilities to to ventilate the significance of the issues around, you know, my illness, your illness, because I do regard it as a public health emergency, public health crisis, um, not just how many people are sick, but how little we're doing about it and how, um, uh, absurd some of our discourses about it how out of touch it is with with the latest um with the latest science but um it, you know it's not easy it's not easy to um to do this and you know you 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 yourself understand that um so often our conversations about me are conversations we have with our me communities mm. and it's hard to break out of that bubble mm. one of the thoughts is could as we've talked about YouTube, could somebody start a YouTube channel um, about ME and take sufficiently strategic steps to grow it? And I've just begun to think about that idea before talking to you, actually, um, more systematically. Um, I've always thought about it a bit because I have a tiny ME YouTube channel on which I don't post much, but which I'm intending to grow over time. 
Mm. And so this, th these reflections will hopefully over time, especially if I get more help, um, feed into some practical decisions that, you know, I could make, you could make about the, the way we um, develop our channels in YouTube. But it, it's got to be very carefully done because you can land yourself into an algorithmic catastrophe very quickly if you just start making sort of hard-hitting 10-15 minute videos about me it could get just stuck in the me community hmm. it could get catastrophically sellotaped to some kind of echo chamber where people are squabbling about pandemic measures which is what you don't want to do hmm. um and so it's, it's, it's a fascinating question of how would you, how would you grow, you know, a channel like that? What, what would you tether it to? Um, and I, I do, I do think that there's plenty of flowers that can bloom. There's no one way to do it. But one thing that I think somebody should do actually is start a UK based political channel that makes videos about issues of inclusion and issues of public health without getting too much into what I would call excessive identity politics and have a channel that says, come on, us Brits have got lots of folks here who are struggling and here's the first story I'm going to tell. And that story might just be people who are having uh, some real problems with getting what they need on the NHS, or it might be just folks having terrible outcomes in terms of the overlap of cyclical poverty and, you know, health conditions. Then you make a video about ME. Then you make a video about not ME. Then you make a video about mm. ME. And that channel eventually uh, grows and maybe sort of tails onto a channel like maybe Owen Jones, I'm not endorsing or criticizing Owen when I'm saying that, but just an example of a left-wing mm. channel talks about British political issues. Um, and then you have, um, then you have a platform to do that would need the full-time efforts mm. of at least one person who is also not financially dependent on the growth of the channel for at least half a year. So that's not a very difficult task, but that's one thing that could be done on, on YouTube. And if it goes well, you could end up with, with videos that are getting 100,000 views and are not just reaching the ME community. Um, mm. But it, yeah, you would need to sit down and really brainstorm how to traverse these waters because they're not going to be easy. For my part, I do have the intention of doing a little bit of this but slowly on the ME channel because I have these channels where I talk about, you know, how all of us are doing in this political environment. I have two channels on that, but I also want to grow the philosophy channel and the ME channel over time. These are two channels I haven't done much on, but I, I want to cultivate it. It needs to be thought about very carefully because we are both, of course, in need of being ethical and responsible, but we also are stuck with the algorithms being what they are. Mm. It's a tough one, isn't it? Because I think so often, particularly on Twitter, it, it just feels like raising awareness is just around sort of talking into a void sometimes because it's breaking. It's like you said, it's finding ways to sort of break out of that and, and try and raise that awareness and, and, I'm guilty of sometimes saying to people 
oh, I've got a chronic illness. Like if somebody delivers stuff to the door and I can't carry the boxes because I'm because then if I say oh, I've got ME, then it's like that leads to a whole conversation. Sometimes I'm not well enough to try and educate a delivery driver about my chronic illness. And in the northeast, people up here like to talk as well. And uh, even our Sainsbury's delivery driver started asking me questions because I live on a farm and I live in a farmhouse. They often presume I'm the farmer, so then I have to sort of like say no, I don't work, and oh, why's that? And and you get down into this conversation. So it it it's almost well, we we have to make individual decisions every day as to whether we educate somebody or just kind of like preserve our energy levels. So then, then trying to sort of like put that onto a into a into a wider context societally to try and break down just this psychologization of the illness that's that's been so pervasive and um, it's it's a challenge, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. I think we'll win this fight, but it's you know it's going to take. A while. I'm very pessimistic that we can agree on much at the moment in our societies, but I mm. do think that on matters of um, medical health, um, where there is um, overwhelmingly clear scientific evidence, it's mostly going to be possible unless it's a very special medical issue which has become you know, extremely politicized. We've seen that. But I do believe that we, we will get there because ultimately what we need is for this to fully percolate through all the medical institutions. It doesn't matter if 20-30% of the population believe that all chronic um, illness is some kind of a globalist conspiracy <laughs> theory. Mm -hmm. um, uh, but it needs to percolate through the institutions. I think it will. I mean, in my opinion, probably since the mid-90s, it's been clear that this is uh, a serious multi-systemic illness without any evidence that there's a special psychological dimension to it. Um, so, you know, it, it is a, it is a, tragedy that by the year 2000, 2005, 2010, we're still not there. And it's 2023. And we're still not there. We've made mm -hmm. progress. But um, we need, uh, you know, we need um, a lot, a lot more. Mm -hmm. And by the time we get there, we would have lost some generations, understandably, perhaps, but some generations needlessly, you know, mm -hmm. like, there's no reason the fact that you are as sick as you are now is, in my opinion, a political issue. It's not because there is some poorly understood health condition. If you were as sick as you are now in 1980, I think that would be different. But in 2023, I think um, it's a series of not just omissions um, on um, our part to act, to do the research, but also a series of positive obstructions, some um, very unconstructive agents introduced into our journey toward getting this illness properly mm. understood, properly researched. I mean, that's that's how we've ended up here. So it's it's in the end a political story. This is not a story about some people who got unlucky and got a, got an illness we don't understand well. Um, and of course, what's very important to to acknowledge is that you don't get to say that an illness is hard to understand unless you've tried to understand it. And mm. I myself would not be very surprised if this wasn't a terribly hard illness to understand, 
um, once you put um, a sufficient number of billions of dollars into it in a constructive way. So do you think, because one of the things that my my situation is quite unique in the sense that I had ME for sort of seven, six, seven years as a, mm -hmm. as a young person, and then and then 20 years later, sort of like it hit me again. But like you're saying, what shocked me was that I, I suppose after I recovered, I didn't, now looking back, I wish I'd been more of an advocate for people with ME, but I just kind of got on with my life after I kind of got better. But, um, and, and it was kind of such a terrible thing that I kind of, put it in my past so it wasn't something I wanted to engage with but then then coming back to it 20 years later it was like hang on a minute nothing's changed nothing's moved on and then learning about the pace trial pace trial research the, the, whatever research you want to call it I mean do you, from the perspective of in terms of those um people that led that that research and the people that are still actually trying to challenge the new NICE guidelines do you feel that they just have like a level of cognitive dissonance or lack of understanding or do they are they are they just not acknowledging the reality of the condition or is is there something sort of deeper going on there in terms of sort of bad faith i don't know i think with some of them it's bad faith and very sick behavior i'm not going to name names on this no. occasion they might <laughs> on another occasion um with some of them it's um more benign um, or at least, you know, it doesn't, it, it's not as, um, consciously, um, unlovely what they're trying to do, mm, but there is no way these people, I mean, I, I believe in psychoanalyzing them, but in the end, th there's nothing that we can do except to, uh, chase them out with uh, sufficiently publicly prominent, factually robust work. Um, and we've got more of that than ever, but it's, it's not sufficient. It's not permeating. So you need some hard hitting investigative work by major journalistic institutions into the history of, um, this illness into the history of the medical practice and malpractice around this illness. Um, and. I think without that, you're not going to get you're not going to get rid of these people. There's not a, there's not a constructive way mm -hmm. to have an intellectual debate with them. They're they're, they're bought in. Moreover, um, you know we've got a few conceptually questionable ideas that are sort of about the possibilities of psychiatry, or sometimes even the possibilities of neurology, that are um, exploiting the population of uh, ME patients, which is to say that um, completely losing access to ME, the world understanding that th these people had the, the, the wrong idea about it, would be a bit existential for these disciplines. And this has been very mm -hmm. unfortunate for ME, but there's really a, a small group of well-connected psychiatrists who perceive that um, letting go of ME would be an existential threat to their research project. Mm -hmm. And what they are now in a very concerted way um, uh, doing is trying to make sure that they also don't lose 
long COVID too. But this mm -hmm. needs to be um, properly looked into with um, a team of professional journalists, sort of us sitting here just pointing out objections and you know, or pointing out the the fact that you know, if, if you had to go around the world and find immunologists who study ME to agree with them, you couldn't find a single one, you know, why is that? But that's that's not gonna settle the issue for us. We need, we need um, you know, robust journalistic investigative work, I think, that um, re recasts the public perception of, of um, what's been going on. And in the process of doing that, doesn't politicize the issue. This is really not something you want to politicize. This has got nothing to do with whether you're going to vote for um, Cornell West or Bernard Trump, or, or Donald Trump, um, <laughs> yeah. Bernard Trump, Donald Trump. It doesn't matter. It's not about politics at all. It's got nothing to do with politics. Um, mm. You know, quite frankly, the fact that you know I have huge um, levels of immune activation is not a party political issue it no, shouldn't be no. in any way no. so there we go but we'll we'll you know however well this turns out we would have lost generations and you know when when we talk again we'll say that maybe you and i to a significant extent lost our lives or big parts of our lives or mm. that we got our lives back, but with a big unnecessary chunk missing. Um, mm. Yeah, we're going to see, and that depends just on where we're going to be in twenty thirty three and twenty forty three. Mm. Yeah, it's it. It feels like there's this. You can look at the future and think there's possibilities for things to shift and things to move on, and and for that be those positive shifts. But then you can also look at the future and think are things going to move on because in the last 20 years there's you know hasn't been that sort of that shift in in the awareness and the, the understanding about the condition and um yeah it's it, it it's difficult um to predict where things are going to head um I, I think we have made several irreversible steps forward in the last mm. 20 years but we needed to make 20 steps and we've made three so that's the problem <laughs> and we don't yeah. want to make you know three steps again in the next 20 years um so i think it's it, it, it's about a much more um accelerated uh, uh, uh progress because at the moment what we're still overly relying on is there is that the, the small amount of money that is going to the small amount of research will mm. will get us there and it might but one feels that that small network of wonderful bubbles of ME research done by wonderful immunologists, wonderful virologists, wonderful experts is just not proportionate. It's not proportionate to the size of the population with this condition. It's not proportionate in crude terms to the economic damage of having people with this condition. I mean, you know, uh, we would need to review some of these reconstructions, but I wouldn't be surprised if the United States were losing up to tens of billions of dollars annually through having so many people sick with my mm. condition. That's an economic problem that needn't be there with mm. with strategic and um, you know uh, constructive investment. Mm. Yeah, um, I'm just aware of the time, but I, I had like loads of questions to ask you. But um, just just to sort of finish off in terms of like 
um because we like to talk about creativity on this channel and and um you you love to talk about classical music and um how does sort of that creativity and music play a part in your life and have you got like if one or two favorite pieces of classical because I, I i feel like i need to learn more about classical music and I, i've i've started sort of watching bits of the proms and, and stuff like that but um i kind of i feel really ignorant about that kind of whole area of music really um but are there one or two pieces that you would sort of recommend for people to listen to to rest to to kind of just like ab absorb some classical music well first i can I can go on speaking for as as long as physically it works for you. So we don't have to, we don't have to have that as the last question. It's just about okay, your energy, okay. your, your energy envelope. I'm I enjoying could, the conversation. I, I yeah, can, like, I'm uh, happy to do quite a bit more. Um, it depends on whether it's somebody who is sort of lying in bed with symptoms and wanting to listen to something gentle or whether it's somebody mm. feeling quite a bit better. Um, you have to, it's always paradoxical, I think, getting into something new, because on the one hand, you have to go with what you are already resonating with, but on the other hand, you have to keep questioning that, because otherwise your love won't grow, it won't develop, you know, and you could be listening to Vivaldi uh, after 10 years of lo loving classical music without, sort of, you know, <laughs> benefiting from the fact that Vivaldi has some marvelous compositional techniques, but he's not a, he's not a truly great composer. So, you know, you would get more out of other, other music, but you have to start with what you love. So it's, it's, it's a difficult, um, it, it, it's a difficult balance. Um, I think that, um, good idea is to see if you have any memory of pieces or performances and then re-listen to them with a good recording of them and with sort of reasonable quality sound whatever you can afford whatever you can get so i often say if you if you feel good about any piece of music and you have a recollection of it, you want to explore more, try it again, but try a better version of it, a better version of the performance of the piece. Um, and try to make sure your sound is whatever is the best you can get. So don't listen to it just out of your phone. Um, so that would be um, really my advice. In terms of my own relationship, I think it's just what I said, it's that, it's that love, um, which normally correlates with what I anyway regard as the best pieces. Um, one of the pieces that has spoken to me um, very deeply is a piano piece by Beethoven called the Diabelli Variations. And the reason that piece speaks to me very much is that it combines profundity with lightness and comedy. Um, and it doesn't use comedy for relief to the profundity, from the profundity. It uses comedy as something 
profound in itself. And the whole piece is a series of variations, many of which are humorous, and they mock human beings. They mock our um, obsessiveness, our our hopelessness uh, at doing what we want to do. Um, they, they mock various ways in which we're indeed laughable. But they don't mock it by saying, oh, you are hopeless, you are um, ridiculous. But by saying, we all are. And actually, if we got rid of that, it would be a terrible world, because it'd be a world without human beings. And it's a piece that in the most extraordinary way combines mockery and tenderness, and mockery and love, and irony and love. So that speaks to me uh, quite a bit, and I anyway have a very high uh, view of this piece. Um, and it it sort of matches my belief, which of course I, I um, have in common with the pianist Alfred Brendel, who has made this belief much more famous, that a lot of classical music can be um, funny and mm. comedic. Um, but I would say, you know, for people who want to take a, a, more of a step in, um, try to go back to something that's in your memory and listen to a good quality version of it, or just taste, just taste a bit. Um, and when you found something you want to try, uh, give a shot to listening to it under the best conditions you can get in terms of paying attention, in terms of, you know, maybe physically feeling not so bad, and in terms of the quality of the, the quality of the sound, and um, and then you know, build on from there. It's not a good idea always to listen to the greatest pieces straight away. Um, you know, uh, sometimes uh, simpler pieces are easier to connect with with less effort. You know, you could listen to some things that Mozart composed as a young man. That Mozart's early symphonies, for example, are very easy to listen to. They're not masterpieces, um, but they're quite accessible. You can you can understand it much more readily. And there's parts of it that could could move you a bit. And then you could say, "Well, I want that, but just more." And then you could move forward. It's interesting because I, I sort of feel with with music, I tend to I tend to go back to pop pop sort of indie sort of alternative music that I like and I, I sort of go back to it and I'm resting because it's kind of like so familiar to me that it kind of washes over me and, and it enables me to rest and then at other times with music um my my cousin's partner is a, a composer and he um he uh Neil Thomas Smith and he writes stuff that's very complex and very abstract sort of thing you'd hear on Radio 3 and um I, I sat down and listened to his album one evening and I was just like it felt like hard work, and it felt, but it, but hard work in the sense that I was enjoying it, but I had to engage my brain with it in a very different way that I would just listening to to something that I'd heard a hundred times before. So yeah, it's it's an interesting thing, isn't it? Um, to 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 engage with new music in a way that um, almost you have to kind of set yourself up and think I'm gonna I'm gonna do this now, as opposed to so that yeah, our brains work in different ways with music, don't they? To to engage in in new music sometimes is a challenge. So it's. Yeah, it's finding a balance, isn't it, in that? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, in terms of physical effort, I find it harder to listen to classical music than to speak live on the internet without a script mm, in terms of energy consumption. So it depends. So obviously that's a, that's a terrible 
idea for anybody for anybody with with a health challenge to 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 just you know in, in invest so much physical and mental energy into something so i actually listen to classical music relatively little very regularly mm. but relatively little because it it's something that I, I I experience as a sort of a bodily experience that mm. adds so much to my life, but it's it's not a background uh, experience mm. for me. Um, so therefore, I consider it very much in term in me terms as activity that sort of yeah. deplete, depletes the battery. It's sort of visceral, isn't it? Um, yeah, it's interesting. Um, I'll ask a couple more questions. Um, I, I was watching a video the other day with an interview with some people that were um, transhumanists, and I, I found the whole concept quite interesting. When it, it's almost the idea of um, sort of adapting our bodies or using artificial intelligence, or um, I mean, they they would they 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 sort of said um, sort of just if you wear if you wear glasses, then you're, you're transhumanist in the sense that you're adapting your body in a way, or wearing clothes, adapting your body in a way that was was kind of like. Uh, um, messing with what what is, um, and it got it got me thinking. I got into a really sort of deep kind of vein of thought, and I was thinking, if if, and I, and I suppose it's modern medicine, isn't it? But if if something came along that you was was having to transform your body to such an extent, but it actually made you better from me, would you take that? Would you sort of like would you choose to sort of um, uh, have a brain transplant or or become a cyborg if it meant that you you got rid of you. and it's a daft question but i just thought it was a fun thought experiment like to what extent would you sort of adapt your body if it meant that you got that you that you recovered from your me because because what makes us us in a sense what what makes us our personality and on our, our, our person well i definitely cut off both of my legs to recover from me um, it's interesting. So I think that now I'm not an expert on the sociology of transhumanism, obviously. But I hadn't heard about it until like a few weeks ago, so it's, it's it, interesting. I just thought it's it's an umbrella that covers a lot of folks who want to talk about sometimes just extending life, but also other times immortality. Hmm. And for me, there is a very big difference between somebody saying, I'm going to try to eat healthy and make it to 90, and somebody talking about freezing themselves um, so that they can then be brought to life uh, 300 years later. Um, now, I, I, I don't want to say exactly where that line between the two is, but I think there is a line. So on mm. the one hand, we're talking about concerns that are about helping people who are sick and helping people who are not sick, stay not sick and yeah. be healthier longer. And obviously that's uncontroversial. Um, so that's taken for granted. If you take that a bit further, sure. But you know, if you end up in a situation where you're talking about um, techno-utopian visions of very elaborate interventions, and my problem with it as a philosopher is that um, 
it's no more coherent than the 20th century utopias we've lived through and which have died because the social institutions um, on which you are dependent for these technologies to work are going to remain fragile no matter what happens. That's to say that if you're frozen somewhere, I could always come and unplug you because there is a war going on or something like that. Mm -hmm. So that's to say that um, um, these techno-utopian ideas are dependent on the fragility of the social and political world which they're trying to transcend. Mm. So, you know, if we've magically had the capacity to freeze ourselves and be brought to life in a hundred years, what's going to happen in that stretch of time, right? There could be a nuclear war. Um, mm. So the, the fantasy here is not in the fact that you could get technology that goes in that direction, but in the fact that that technology can be transformative of human nature and could 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 overcome all of the other obstacles that that kind of technology will be dependent upon to exist and sustain itself. So I, I make a distinction between sort of uh, the kind of ways anybody would want to improve their life and their health and something that's much more far-fetched. And I suspect that that vision of sort of you know, dramatic intervention of a technological kind to give humans completely new possibilities for for for, for functioning, for living, for for, for um, delaying death dramatically. That may be a utopia that dies too in the twenty first century, as I suspect might Elon Musk's utopia, the utopia of um, distributing human life beyond this planet. So my mm. soft predictions are that these are a couple of utopias that are going to be talked about as having collapsed um, in the 2200s, um, the way we've talked about some utopias that collapsed in the in the 20th century. But would I want to live till 120? Without any doubt, yes. Um, you know, would I want to live till I'm 400? No. Um, no, I wouldn't. What? Um, <clears throat> Would would I want to be cured from my chronic illness if that meant ceasing to be me? No. Yeah. Obviously it's not. A, that yeah. would be um, an invitation to a kind of death of the personality. Um, so... <laughs> But but it's hard for me to say that all of the mean things I've just said about supposedly transhumanism are fair because it really is a big umbrella, and mm. it's possible that some of the more moderate proposals in in that sort of bracket of conversations going to be more accessible uh, and more realistic. But what I ultimately object to is the idea that you could have any kind of technology that isn't going to be dependent on politics and that if politics is mm. wobbly wonky goes wrong um these technologies just disappear i mean you could be um as the public intellectual john gray uh, once said you know the company that 
uh, you know, put you in some kind of frozen state may cease to exist. <laughs> mm. uh, so, so, so it's that it's that social and political contingency that can never be, in my opinion, removed from life. And I do think part of the fantasies about these technologies is that they could do that too. But I actually think they can't, and they're themselves dependent on these um, fleeting and contingent rea realities of our life. Mm. No, interesting. Thank you for that. It's, um, that was just something that got me thinking. I was thinking, to what extent would we, what would we sort of sacrifice about ourselves to live me free and 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 where yeah where do we draw where would where would i draw the line in terms of thinking about okay if i if i could be better what would i what yeah would i live in a in somebody else's body with my brain transplanted if that meant that i had a, yeah i've just got down a strange chain of thought but it's a fascinating one and in, in, in thinking about yeah i um, think it's scary how far you would go uh, because you know um especially people watching this who who haven't really seen emmy in in real life i don't know how sick you might be in, in seven hours from now um mm. it's hard for them to understand yeah how 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 tricky and, and and difficult it is and how strong an incentive there is to do anything to make it better mm. yeah yeah well, i think that's probably a good place to to stop but it's been a fascinating conversation and i feel we could have talked talked much longer but um whether people want it would want to listen to us much longer is another question in terms of getting tired out but yeah it's it's um yeah thanks a lot for your your time vlad and it's been um really good to sort of chat to you and uh, we've connected on sort of uh, twitter quite a bit and stuff in the past but it's been good to actually connect uh in this way as well so um thanks thanks for your time and um and, and maybe we could catch up again in the future and maybe in 10 years time we'll find out uh, where <laughs> things have moved to but maybe before then so yeah. yeah no i'm i'm here to uh to come back and uh, have another chat mm. i think that um it, it's wonderful what you're doing with this channel i appreciate also that you know it's it's hard it's hard to invest all of the time and the energy to get this going. Um, so um, I'm a big supporter and also don't be sort of fearful of the tribulations of trial and error that it, that it takes mm. to move a project like this forward. So I'm very proud of you. And um, I, I, I think that uh, it, it's, it's, it's always remarkable how resilient and also how still creative human beings can be when when they're going through a lot. So I'm really proud of what you guys are doing with this with mm. this channel. Yeah, thank you. Um, and yeah, I, I hope we're we're still doing it in a year's time, and that you know it's, it's grown, and that people want to. It's a hard one because we want to make it accessible for people, but we're also aware that um, people don't always want to listen to content about their own illness, and and um, yeah, that's that's not always easy. So it's it's not something that necessarily is going to become a huge thing, but the people that do listen, we really appreciate and, and, um, and wanting to foster that sort of the creative side of things and just, um, raise awareness of people's creative works as well. And, um, 
uh, I'll put in the um, in the notes uh, on on Spotify and everywhere else and on YouTube the uh, Vlad's channels if you want to go and check them out that'd be that'd be brilliant. Um, subscribe to them, have a listen, have a watch. Um, subscribe to us because uh, quite a lot of people watch but haven't subscribed. So do subscribe if you can. And um, thank you very much, Vlad. And uh, yeah, we'll, we'll we'll maybe catch up again. <laughs> thank you. Thank you.